It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1855, a Maryland slave owner was walking through a marketplace in Dorchester County when he nearly bumped into a black woman struggling with a number of unruly chickens. The birds were causing a ruckus, and the slave owner kept his head down as he moved around the woman without helping. Had he paid closer attention, he may have recognized her as his own former slave, Harriet Tubman. Tubman, who by then was one of the most active members of the Underground Railroad, had risked returning to her home county in order to rescue some of her family members. The unruly chickens were, in fact, a shrewd distraction meant to draw attention away from her face. Harriet Tubman was born into slavery and escaped to the northern states as a young woman. She made it her life's mission to rescue as many others from slavery as she possibly could. She said, quote, I had reasoned this out in my mind. There was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other, end quote. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures on the Parcast Network. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing American abolitionist and underground railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. Over the course of her storied life, Harriet Tubman served as a liberator, a spy, a soldier, and one of the most prominent figures in the anti-slavery abolitionist movement. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was born in Dorchester County, Maryland, on the Brodus Plantation. American slave owners often didn't keep accurate birth records for their slaves, so Tubman's exact birth date isn't known. From other records of her family and from her own recollections, historians have narrowed down her birthday to sometime between 1818 and 1822. Her parents, Harriet Ritt Green and Benjamin Ross, both slaves, named her Araminta Minty Ross. She was the fifth of nine siblings. Lena, Mariah Ritty, Soph, Robert, Minty, Ben, Rachel, Henry, and Moses. Harriet, then known as Minty, was a small child, but she was strong for her size. As a young girl, she was put in charge of babysitting her little brother, Ben, while Ritt went off to work in the big house, the building where the plantation owners lived. 
Harriet later told stories of swinging her baby brother around her head in a sack until he cried, and of cooking him pieces of pork to calm him down. Even at a very young age, she was fairly strong and independent. Her babysitting duties came to an end sometime around her fifth or sixth year, once her owner had decided she was old enough to be hired out. You see, Harriet's parents were owned by different members of the same family, but their owners had very different philosophies about slavery. Benjamin Ross's owner, Anthony Thompson, respected loyalty in his slaves and was known to free them when they reached 45 years of age. But Ritt's owner, Edward Brodus, felt no such allegiance to his slaves. Although the Brodus plantation produced both tobacco and timber, it was not a large operation. At any given time, Brodus had more slaves than he needed to maintain the plantation, and thus would often sell off or rent out his unneeded slaves during the leaner months. All slaves lived in fear of losing their family members to faraway slave traders, and the Rosses were no different. As early as 1825, when Harriet was around five years old, her second eldest sister, Mariah Riddy, was sold off to a Mississippi slave trader, never to be seen again. Shortly after that, Brodus rented Harriet out to his neighbors, the Cooks, as a domestic servant. Harriet suffered from extreme homesickness during her time working for the Cooks, They tried to teach her weaving, but she failed miserably, perhaps because her fingers were too small, or perhaps because refusing to learn was her way of resisting. Frustrated, the cooks gave up trying to teach Harriet that skill and punished her by assigning her to check the muskrat traps sunk in the muddy streams around their property. Checking muskrat traps was a dangerous job, involving slippery wet rocks, metal traps, and angry rodents. Usually only adults were tasked with such a grisly job. To make things worse, Harriet came down with a severe case of the measles during the winter of 1826. The cooks were unsympathetic and forced her to continue working even as her condition worsened. Despite Harriet's obvious symptoms, including red marks on her face, the cooks accused her of lying about her illness. They beat her, trying to force her to confess the lie. They eventually gave up and sent her back to the Brodus plantation. Once back in her mother's care, Harriet recovered from her sickness, but the family reunion was to be short-lived. A woman known to history only as Miss Susan soon approached Edward Brodus looking to rent a young slave girl to watch over her son and do menial tasks around the house. So in 1827, Harriet was once more rented out to a stranger, She couldn't have been more than 10. Miss Susan was a harsh woman and frequently whipped Harriet about her face and neck, leaving deep welts and scars that Harriet carried for the rest of her life. On Harriet's first day working for Miss Susan, she was ordered to sweep and dust the house. Harriet had never dusted before, and she didn't know how to do it properly. On her first day, she dusted all the furniture and then moved onto the floor, However, she dusted the floor so vigorously that the dust ended up flying into the air and settling back onto the furniture. When Miss Susan saw all the dust, she beat Harriet about the face and forced her to redo the job. This began a vicious cycle in Miss Susan's house. Harriet would be given a task with little to no instruction. She would perform the task to the best of her abilities, 
and then would inevitably be beaten for failing to perform her duty to some invisible standard. It was only after Miss Susan's sister came to visit and taught young Harriet how to properly wipe down furniture that Harriet finally managed to perform well enough to avoid the beatings. In addition to housekeeping, Harriet was tasked with caring for Miss Susan's baby, and thus she had little time for rest. She was forced to sit up all night rocking the cradle and comforting the child. If she ever nodded off or if the baby cried too much, Miss Susan would beat her. One day, Miss Susan caught Harriet trying to steal a lump of sugar. She was whipped again and unceremoniously sent back to the Brodus farm once more. It was now 1831, and Harriet was around 11 years old. She was no longer legally considered a child and began wearing a bright bandana around her hair to indicate that she was now an adult. She also shed her childhood name, or her basked name, as she called it, and became known as Harriet, perhaps in honor of her mother. Harriet, having proven herself unwilling or unable to be a house slave, was sent to work in the fields of the Brodus plantation with the men and boys. The work was hard, but Harriet took to it much more naturally than she had housework. The endless days of manual labor under the hot sun molded Harriet into a strong and athletic young woman. At night, she would rest her sore body by laying out under the stars. It was during these bouts of nightly solitude that she began to develop her knack for quickly finding the North Star. The star pointed the way towards the North and freedom, a sign Harriet would follow many times in the years to come. By the time Harriet was 12, she'd been hired out yet again to yet another plantation owner. One day, she was sent into town to purchase groceries. She encountered a slave from a nearby farm who was trying to escape slavery. The man's overseer was in pursuit, and when he saw Harriet, he demanded that she help him capture the escaped slave. Harriet refused. Infuriated, the overseer attempted to stop the runaway by throwing a heavy metal weight at him, but his aim was poor, and the weight struck Harriet in the head instead. Later in life, she said that the injury broke my skull. Harriet was bloody and unconscious for two days. The plantation owner who had rented her refused to allow Harriet to receive medical attention. When she finally awoke, Harriet was sent back into the fields. It quickly became evident that Harriet was in no position to work. She was constantly dizzy and susceptible to fainting. Had the plantation owner allowed Harriet to see a doctor, he likely would have seen that she had severe cranial bleeding. The renter eventually grew tired of waiting for Harriet to recover or die, and he sent her back to Brodus. By this point, Brodus was tired of seeing Harriet constantly returned to him by dissatisfied renters. He tried to sell her, to no avail. No one was interested in an injured, half-dead slave. Harriet never fully recovered from the injury, and the side effects of the head wound plagued her for the rest of her life. She suffered seizures and fainting spells until her death. Based off her list of symptoms, Historians have concluded that she probably suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. Those with temporal lobe epilepsy tend to suffer from seizures, blackouts, and hallucinations. In some cases, including Harriet's, these hallucinations took the form of extremely emotional religious visions. She believed these visions showed her future. 
although they were most likely a side effect of her devastating brain injury, these visions actually helped to inspire Harriet Tubman's later determination to free her people from slavery. She also became notably more religious after her recovery, and even gained a reputation for her sudden bouts of speaking out in religious fervor. Her increased religiousness makes sense regardless of the quote-unquote visions. Harriet had suffered much by her early teens, and life would only get harder. Over the next few years, Harriet's family was continually broken up. Brodus sold off Harriet's two older sisters, Lena and Soph, and Harriet's mother, Rit, became increasingly desperate to hold on to the children she had left. When Brodus tried to sell off Moses, Harriet's youngest brother, in 1835, Rit started a campaign to stand up to her owner. Rit hid the boy away, passing him through a network of other sympathetic slaves and free blacks. Rit's friends hid Moses in the woods, keeping him away from slave catchers. When Brodus surprised Rit by bringing a buyer to her home, she refused to reveal Moses' location and instead called out that, the first man who comes into my house, I will split his head open. Rather than face Rit's wrath, Brodus and the potential buyer backed off, and Moses returned to his mother. They did not come after Moses again, though Brodus took his revenge on Rit later when he refused to follow the rules of his grandfather's will, which dictated that Rit should be freed after turning 45. Harriet had already seen how little acts of resistance, such as refusing to learn to weave and stealing sugar, were possible. Painful and costly, yes, but possible. Now she had witnessed her mother perform an enormous act of resistance, risking her life and her safety to save her youngest son and win. Rit's stand against Brodus was a formative event in Harriet's childhood, one of the many lessons which later encouraged her to escape to freedom and devote her life to dismantling slavery. Next, we'll discuss Harriet's early adulthood and her first attempts to gain her freedom. Now back to the story. By the mid-1830s, Harriet Tubman was only a teenager, but she'd already experienced the harshest cruelties of American slavery. She'd been separated from her family as a child, whipped, beaten, and even dealt a near-fatal blow to the head. In 1837, Harriet was rented out to John Stewart, who put her to work in his fields and timber yards. The stewards had a large operation in Dorchester County, Maryland, which included farming grain and timber and building ships. They needed strong slaves. Harriet preferred the physical labor and relative freedom of the fields to the petty tyranny and constant oversight of a house slave. She took pride in her strength and excelled at tasks generally assigned to men. She was a hard worker and surpassed Stewart's expectations, so much so that he began paying her a small salary. For the first time in her life, Harriet had money of her own. She saved up, intending to one day buy her freedom. In 1840, her father, Ben Ross, was released from slavery by the terms of his contract, which indicated that he was a term slave rather than a slave for life. He was freed at age 45, though he continued to work for his former owner and rented himself out to others in order to earn money. He frequently rented himself out to John Stewart, where he got to see his daughter Harriet. 
Following her father's release, Harriet used her own money to pay a lawyer to look into her mother Ritt's contract. She discovered that Ritt, too, was a term slave and should have been freed at 45 years old. But Edward Brodus had no intentions of honoring the terms of the contract and continued to fudge Ritt's age in order to maintain control over her. Since there were no official records of Ritt's birth, Brodus could lie about her age. This was a common practice amongst southern slave owners and was very rarely prosecuted by the law. It seemed that Harriet had no legal course of action to secure her mother's freedom. For the time being, what remained of the family would be staying put in Maryland. In 1844, around the age of 24, Harriet married John Tubman, a local free black man. Though there are no official records of their union in either the state or church records, it is clear that Harriet must have loved John very much, as she took his last name as her own for the rest of her life, even long after the two had separated. John was born free and had never known the horrors of slavery. He was older than Harriet, around 32 when they wed. There are no known accounts of how Harriet and John met or how they courted, but since John was a free man and Harriet was still a slave, the law would have dictated that they live together on Harriet's owner's estate. John would be free to come and go, but Harriet was still constrained by the terms of slavery. John Tubman was a cautious man, and he discouraged Harriet from attempting to escape to freedom. He even reportedly threatened to turn her into Edward Brodus and his slave catchers if she did attempt escape. John's threats to Harriet were inspired by fear of what would happen to Harriet if she tried to escape and failed. Slaves caught by slave catchers were often beaten and sometimes killed, and their families were punished for their disobedience. The safer course of action would be for John to earn enough money to buy Harriet's freedom from Brodus himself. John's rejection of Harriet's ambitions to free herself has led historians to frame him in a negative light, but we must not forget that John Tubman gave up several of his rights as a free black man in order to marry Harriet in the first place. He had to move to her plantation for one thing, and he gave up the rights to any children he and Harriet might have had. Under Maryland law, any children born to an enslaved woman belonged to her master, regardless of their father's status. That's horrible. It's just another example of the brutal conditions of American slavery. So you can see why from 1844 to 1849, Harriet grew increasingly restless. Despite her husband's urging to stay put, she dreamt nonstop of following the North Star out of Maryland to Pennsylvania and to freedom. She used the money she'd been saving to purchase a pair of oxen, Since she brought them with her when renting herself out, she and John were able to charge more for her time plowing fields. By working these traditionally male jobs, laboring in the fields and in timber forests, Harriet gained exposure to a larger network of slaves and free blacks. This network extended beyond Maryland, across the entire east coast of the United States. It was through that network that she first heard tales of the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad was a network of abolitionists who were willing to help and shelter escaped slaves on their way to the northern states and Canada. Started sometime in the early 1800s, it operated in secrecy until the abolition of slavery. 
Abolitionists hid escaped slaves in their homes, ferried them across rivers, and passed messages up and down their chain of contacts to those wishing to make the journey. Aiding an escaped slave was an illegal and dangerous endeavor. Slave catchers were constantly trying to shut down the Underground Railroad, so being able to trust the people you spoke to was absolutely crucial. Sailors on the waterways taught Harriet the secret codes and signals she would need to use on the railway. She also learned different routes to take to the north, how to identify someone she could trust, and how to disguise a message in a Bible. By this point, Harriet had money and connections to escape, but her husband John prevented her from running away just yet. He was still nervous for her. But in 1849, fate forced Harriet's hand. Her childhood head injury flared up again and incapacitated her for several days, during which Edward Brodus once again attempted to sell her away from her home and family. Harriet was terrified that she and her family would be separated. For a time, she prayed every night that Brodus would change his mind and decide against selling her. Her prayers were answered, in a sense, Brodus did not change his mind, but he had difficulty finding a buyer. Harriet had been hired out so much by that point in her life that she had gained something of a reputation among the neighboring plantations. Harriet was known to be a good field worker, but she was also known to be disobedient. Most importantly, the seizures and fainting spells that still affected her on account of her head injury made her a difficult sell. Brodus still tried to get rid of Harriet, though. As she became more desperate, Harriet began to pray a different kind of prayer. Harriet's biographer, Sarah Hopkins Bradford, wrote that one night in 1849, Harriet prayed, quote, Oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change the man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out of the way, end quote. One week later, Edward Brodus passed away. Brodus had been a cruel master, but his death actually devastated Harriet and her family. Now they were all at an even higher risk of being sold in order to settle Edward's debts. If they were sold to a plantation further south or a larger plantation that kept stricter tabs on their slaves, their chances of freedom would be significantly lessened. It was time for Harriet to act. On September 17, 1849, Harriet escaped from the Brodus farm, accompanied by her brothers, Ben and Henry. It took Eliza Brodus, Edward's widow, nearly two weeks to notice their absence and to put out posters offering a reward for their return. Unfortunately, Harriet's brothers, who had only come along at their sister's urging, were afraid of what would happen if they were caught. Despite Harriet's insistence that this might be their only chance to escape, the risk of losing their families, who were still enslaved, was too great. Ben, in particular, had recently become a father and was unhappy leaving his wife and child behind and enslaved. So the trio turned back and returned to the Burgess farm. The escape had failed. Harriet realized that if she truly wanted to escape to freedom, she would have to set out on her own. It was likely around this time that Harriet came into contact with a group of Quakers who supported the abolitionist cause. Many historians believe this group served as Harriet's initial introduction to the Underground Railroad. 
Sometime after the 1849 escape attempt, Harriet once again went to her brothers, Ben and Henry, and urged them to accompany her. This time, she was unsuccessful. Harriet turned to her husband, but John also made it clear that he would not go with her if she chose to run away. Harriet was undeterred, but she hoped that she might be able to at least bid farewell to her mother before escaping. She tried to get writ alone so that the two could share a proper goodbye. Tragically, slaves were offered very little privacy, especially on large plantations. There was no way for Harriet to tell her mother about her plan without risking exposing herself. Left with no other choice, Harriet broke into a song while she, her mother, and their fellow slaves were in the midst of their daily chores. She hoped the song lyrics would give her mother a hint of her intentions and signal an affectionate goodbye. With the plans in place and all on her own, Harriet made her move. Around October 3, 1849, Harriet fled from the Brodus plantation under the cover of night. She met up with abolitionists who drove her to her next destination in a wagon, and so began Harriet Tubman's inaugural journey north. Once she crossed over the state line into Pennsylvania, Harriet was a free woman. She settled for a short time in Philadelphia, but soon became restless. Harriet later wrote that, quote, I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, end quote. She had gained her own freedom, yes, but she began to realize that she would never be truly free until she had liberated the rest of her family. She began to make plans for a return trip to bring her family and her husband north with her. Harriet took various short-term jobs in Philadelphia, earning money for her return trip. She also met a free black man named William Still, one of the busiest station masters on the Underground Railroad. William Still put Harriet in contact with other abolitionists in the Underground Railroad network. They helped Harriet organize the rescue of around 70 other slaves over the coming years. Before Harriet could return to Maryland, the United States passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which made aiding and abetting an escaped slave a highly punishable crime, and required any escaped slave to be returned to their former owners, regardless of where in the United States they were found. Philadelphia was no longer safe. If Harriet really wanted to save her family, she would have to take them even further north to Canada. What's more, if she was captured on her return journey, she would be forced back into slavery under the Brodus family, an outcome she was not prepared to face. In December 1850, Harriet got word that her niece, Kasiah Boley, and Kasiah's two children were about to be sold at auction. Harriet hatched a plan to spirit the family away to Canada. Harriet traveled back down to Maryland and stayed with her brother-in-law, Tom Tubman, until the auction. The plan to save Kasiah was twofold. On the day of the auction, Kasiah's husband, John Boley, who was free, made the winning bid for his wife. The bid was a ruse. John didn't have the money to cover it. While the rest of the sales were taking place, John gathered Kasiah and her children and hid them away at the home of a nearby abolitionist. When night fell, the most dangerous part of the journey began. It was the dead of winter, and the waterways were freezing. John Boley sailed the family up the river to Baltimore. 
Though he himself was a free man, he risked being sold into slavery along with his wife and children if they were caught. Harriet met up with a family in Baltimore and led them up to Philadelphia. They could make their way to Canada from there. A few months after saving Kasaya Boley, Harriet returned to Maryland to ferry her youngest brother Moses and two other slaves to freedom. In September 1851, she returned a third time, intending to bring her husband John Tubman to Philadelphia. But when Harriet made it back to Maryland, she found that John had remarried. He had no desire to leave with Harriet. Harriet was devastated that John had moved on so quickly. She wanted to storm into his house and make a scene, regardless of the consequences. But reason prevailed, and she decided John Tubman was not worth risking her freedom. If he could move on, so could she. She could still make this trip worthwhile. Still in Maryland, Harriet met up with a group of escaped slaves gathered at a local abolitionist's house and led them north. There was a young baby among the group, and the travelers feared the child's crying might attract unwanted attention and endanger the entire group. But Harriet fed the baby sedatives to keep it quiet on the long journey. When they got to Pennsylvania, the group took refuge at an abolitionist's house while Harriet gathered the necessary funds to get them all to Canada. Once the funds arrived, Harriet led the group onwards, out of Pennsylvania and across a suspension bridge over Niagara Falls and into Canada. In Canada, they settled in St. Catherine, Ontario, an integrated community which served as Harriet's base of operations for six years. Between 1851 and 1860, Harriet made several more trips to the South, bringing up groups of escaped slaves to Canada. She traveled mostly in the winter, when the nights were longer and she could ferry large groups under the cover of darkness. The escapees included most of her family, except those who had already been sold away. Her brothers Ben, Henry, and Robert had already attempted to run away several times, but had been thwarted each time until Harriet arrived to help. Around Christmas in 1854, Harriet came to escort her brothers to freedom. Ben and Henry met her at the appointed place and time, but Robert was late. His wife was having a baby that day, and he agonized over leaving her behind. But he was facing a looming sale to a slaveholder down south, so Robert's wife eventually forced him to go. When Robert arrived at the meeting place, however, Harriet and the others were already gone. Harriet had a strict policy of never waiting for anyone who was late, not even her own brother. Robert ran all night to the second meeting place, where he joined up with Harriet's group and began the journey north. In 1855, Harriet's father, Ben Ross, purchased her mother Ritz Freedom for $20, over $500 in today's money. Later, Harriet's parents and dozens of nieces and nephews also made the journey north. Harriet spent the next several years traveling between Canada and the U.S., ferrying slaves to freedom. She gained a reputation for her ruthlessness. Harriet would not allow anyone in her liberation party to risk the safety of the group. Whenever a slave she was helping got cold feet or tried to run away, Harriet would threaten to shoot them. She kept drugs and sedatives on hand for young children. If they cried too loudly, Harriet would put them to sleep so as not to give their position away to slave catchers. Her tactics clearly worked. 
over her many years of liberating slaves via the Underground Railroad, Harriet never once lost a passenger. Though she might be most famous for leading those nighttime escapes through the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman went on to take an increasingly active role in dismantling American slavery over the coming decades. We'll talk about Harriet's later years and the groundbreaking role she played in the Civil War right after this. Now back to the story. In the late 1850s, as the United States headed toward an inevitable civil war, Harriet Tubman came to be known as the most successful agent of the Underground Railroad. It was around 1858 when 38-year-old Harriet met the famous abolitionist, orator, and writer Frederick Douglass. Douglass had escaped slavery himself some years before and became a leader in the anti-slavery movement. He introduced Harriet Tubman to John Brown, a radical white abolitionist who believed the only way to end slavery was through violent insurrection. Brown and Tubman immediately developed a mutual respect for one another. John Brown called Harriet General Tubman and looked to her for advice on recruiting escaped slaves to his cause. Though Harriet did not necessarily share John Brown's beliefs, she supported his goals and through 1859 helped him plan an attack on the weapons depot at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Brown hoped to steal the weapons and use them to arm slaves who could then rise up against their owners and fight for their freedom. Harriet used her knowledge of the South and her network of contacts to find support for Brown's plans. Unfortunately, the attack on Harper's Ferry was a failure, and John Brown was captured and hung for his actions. Days after his capture, Brown's home was raided and several incriminating documents were confiscated, which implicated his co-conspirators. Harriet Tubman was one of those named in the documents, making her continued abolitionist activities even more dangerous. Despite this, Harriet risked traveling to Boston on December 2, 1859, to be with John Brown's friends on the day of his execution. Brown was a man whom Harriet truly respected, and his death hit her particularly hard. She later said of Brown, quote, He'd done more in dying than 100 men did in living. In 1860, Harriet brought her parents, who by then were both living as free people, up north from Maryland. A word had gotten out that Ben had been harboring runaway slaves at his home, and an arrest warrant was issued for both him and Ritt. So Harriet smuggled both her parents north to New York State, where the family settled on a farm in Auburn. In 1861, Harriet's role as an abolitionist changed yet again. The United States was barreling quickly towards a civil war, and the Union Army was enlisting soldiers for the cause. Harriet was eager to help out and approached Union officers to offer her assistance. She enlisted as a contraband nurse, treating sick and injured slaves freed during the course of the Civil War. Uh, contraband was the term the Union Army used to describe slaves freed during the course of the war. Though many of the freed slaves were in terrible condition, Harriet treated them with herbal medicines and managed to save a great many people. Thankfully, she was lucky enough never to catch any of the diseases her patients carried. In January 1863, President Abraham Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation, which officially freed more than 3.5 million slaves under federal law. 
Harriet saw the act as an important historical moment for all of black America, but she knew there was so much more work to be done. Of course, actually forcing Southern slaveholders to free people was a much more complex task. It was a difficult policy to enforce at the best of times, and since the Confederate states now considered themselves a separate country unbound by the laws of the United States government, they were unwilling to comply with the presidential order. At this point, Harriet took a more active role in the Civil War and offered her services to Union Colonel James Montgomery as a scout and spy. She would venture into Confederate territory to gather information about troop movements and weapons stores and to find communities of slaves ready to join the Union cause. On June 2, 1863, Harriet became the first woman to lead an armed assault in the Civil War. She and Colonel Montgomery led three steamboats full of black Union soldiers down the Cumbee River in South Carolina, where they raided rice plantations, burned buildings, and freed the slaves working there. Harriet gained the trust of the slaves from these plantations and convinced them to join her. The freed slaves provided Harriet with vital intel, including the location of Confederate mines along the river. With this knowledge, Harriet was able to guide the Union ships safely across the water. This mission, later known as the Cumbie River Raid, made Harriet the only known woman to lead a successful operation during the Civil War. All in all, around 750 slaves were freed as a result of her actions that day. After the Cumbie River Raid, Harriet continued working for the Union Army as a nurse and scout until the end of the Civil War in 1865. When the war ended, Harriet returned to Auburn, New York, where she worked various odd jobs and opened her home up to boarders in order to pay the bills and support her parents. She still struggled financially, and eventually she petitioned the U.S. government to compensate her for her service during the war. Most nurses and soldiers were paid for their time, but Harriet hadn't been. Even worse, her petition was denied, and she was given only $200 for over three years of dedicated service. Though the government still refused to acknowledge her contributions to the war, Harriet's abolitionist friends remembered and supported her. They raised funds to help her out and published accounts of her life honoring her actions. Opening her home to boarders wasn't all bad. One of those boarders was Nelson Charles Davis, a bricklayer and Union Army veteran 22 years younger than Harriet, who was around 49 at the time. Despite their age difference, the two fell in love and married on March 18, 1869. In 1874, Harriet and Nelson Davis adopted a daughter named Gertie, and the little family lived a happy, if financially strained, life until 1888, when Nelson died of tuberculosis. During the 1890s, Harriet, then in her 70s, continued campaigning for compensation from the federal government in return for her work during the Civil War. She also supported the women's suffrage movement, attending meetings and speaking at rallies. But Harriet had little luck in these later years. Harriet's seizures and fainting spells had plagued her for her entire life, ever since she was struck by that weight as a child. She had overcome these maladies for the past several decades, but in the 1890s, these symptoms became unbearable. 
Harriet started to experience intense, chronic migraines that left her bedridden. She found herself unable to complete her responsibilities, and thus she sought medical help. Harriet opted for brain surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. She refused anesthesia and simply bit down on a bullet while the operation commenced. Quite the display of toughness. Though tragically, it's unclear whether the operation actually helped Harriet with her migraines. But the turn of the century finally saw some good news for Harriet. In 1899, the U.S. government recognized Harriet Tubman's service in the Union Army and granted her a stipend of $20 per month, roughly equivalent to $600 a month in today's money, as compensation. And in 1903, an aging Harriet donated some of her land for the establishment of a home for elderly African Americans, the first home of its kind. However, her lifelong health issues continued to decline during the first decade of the 20th century. In 1911, she was finally forced to reside in the same home for the elderly that she had helped to found. In 1913, at approximately the age of 93, Harriet Tubman died of pneumonia. She had been well-known and respected during her life, and her renown only grew throughout the remainder of the 20th century. She was celebrated in history books and held as an inspirational figure during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Her home in Auburn, New York, was established as a historical site. And just recently, in 2016, the Federal Reserve elected to inscribe her image on the front of the American $20 bill, replacing President Andrew Jackson. Over the course of her life, Harriet brought between 60 and 80 slaves to freedom. And in all that time, she never once lost a passenger. For this, she was known as the Moses of her people, leading black slaves to freedom just as the biblical character had once done for the Jews. Harriet Tubman was a brave woman who risked her life and her freedom countless times to ensure the freedom of others. She fought every day to end the evil of American slavery, and she remains an iconic civil rights figure to this day. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, uh, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Colleen Bradley and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.